Hello, I'm Jeremy Allaire, and welcome to The Money Movement, a show where we explore the issues and ideas driving this brave new world of digital currency and blockchains. One of the major issues that has vexed policymakers and regulators and is really fundamental to the growth and adoption of cryptocurrency and blockchains are issues around financial privacy. This is coming even more into focus now as blockchain payments built on stable coins have really clearly become the killer app of blockchains with their growth surging. And we're really, I think, very much entering an era that may really herald the mainstream era of digital currency for everyday payments and value exchange. How can we be assured of our privacy with blockchain payments? And are there risks of government and law enforcement overreach? And we're talking about not just the United States, but every country in the world and how they uh, respect or don't respect financial privacy. Now on the flip side, are there boundaries of financial privacy for individuals? Uh, are there, is there a social contract, so to speak, around the financial system that sacrifices some degree of privacy uh, for the benefit of society? And, and fundamentally, are there risks that privacy preserving technologies do pose to governments and their broader social mandates. A related issue is, is really around uh, corporate and commercial privacy. Public blockchains and stablecoin payments that are running on those public networks uh, are, are very, very powerful for corporations, but how can a company adopt this and not disclose private transaction activity as a firm with these uh, public ledgers? And then, you know, more broadly, what are the technology and policy answers to these questions? So a lot to cover here today and uh, to help us explore these topics, I'm very pleased to welcome two exceptional guests, Jared Brito, founder and executive director of Coin Center, one of the preeminent think tanks on digital currency and a firm that I know has done a lot of thinking on this topic specifically. And Paul Brody, a principal and global blockchain leader at Ernst & Young, and one of the drivers behind the Nightfall project, which aims to enable privacy-preserved payment transactions on Ethereum, while also enabling trusted third-party audits of those transactions. Uh, welcome, Jerry and Paul. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Excellent. Um, really excited to have you guys today. Um, maybe we could just, we'll just start... Um, a little bit with just quick intros, uh, maybe Jerry, just uh, you know, thirty seconds on on what you're up to, and 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 sort of any background on the topic, uh, and then we're going to really dive into the topic, of course, too. Sure. Well, thank you, Jeremy, for having me. Um, you know, for those who don't know, um, uh, I'm executive director of Coin Center, and Coin Center is a independent nonprofit based in D.C., and we're focused on the public policy issues that affect. Uh, cryptocurrencies and open blockchain networks, right? So things like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Zcash, Monero, and the like. Um, and to date, those public policy issues that we've been focused on, which are many, you know, have included securities law, uh, consumer protection law, tax, um, but one that really has been a major issue um, since our inception about six years ago has been um, anti-money laundering, um, uh, counter-terrorism uh, financing, um, know your customer type uh, uh, policy um, that's all based in the Bank Secrecy Act. And so as you were saying, um, we have to find a balance 
between uh, the understandable uh, need of law enforcement and government to investigate crimes um, with the people's um, sort of need uh, and right to privacy. And cash has been always sort of a main tool for achieving that privacy. And today, crypto is the new cash. Um, and so we've been trying to, to figure out what, um, what's the right balance there. And so hopefully that's what we'll discuss, but that's, that's one, of, one of our main focuses. Excellent. Thank you, Jerry. Uh, Paul, quick, quick introduction. Sure. So I'm Paul Brody. I'm the global blockchain leader at EY. And uh, we're obviously one of the world's biggest sort of accounting, uh, tax, and professional services organizations. I, I lead all of our global blockchain teams. And the way that we really look at this is very, very focused on the enterprise side of things, right? So um, as a consumer, I very much value and care about my privacy. Uh, but a lot of consumers seem pretty comfortable with exchanging some level of privacy for, um, uh, for access to convenience. Uh, that's certainly a model that's been established for a while. At the enterprise level, it's just a non-starter. If you don't have privacy in your business transactions, you're just not going to adopt almost any form of uh, kind of digital technology. So uh, for us, you know, being focused on serving enterprises, that was early on one of our focuses. And, uh, and a particular focus for us is how to do the maximum level of privacy that is fully consistent with regulatory compliance, right? You, in your introduction, Jeremy, you brought up things like overreach and other topics. And, you know, we don't get to make a lot of the policy on that, but we have to be very, very focused on, on helping our clients be regulatory compliant. Awesome. So, you know, there's very much, uh, you know, what do individuals as sovereigns have vis-a-vis -vis financial privacy? Obviously, corporations themselves are, are a nexus of of contracts and, and bound by a series of laws, but also deeply focused on privacy um, as much so uh, as certainly as individuals. Maybe we can um, maybe bring this up a level, um, and and uh, and and I'll turn to you first, Jerry, on this. But help us define financial privacy. What does that phrase mean to you? What's the essence of this idea of financial privacy? So. I kind of um, break it down into two parts, right? Um, one is privacy from the state, right? And that means basically your Fourth Amendment rights to be free from searches and, and seizures, right? If the state wants to um, come and look at your papers and effects, they need to get a warrant from a judge before they can do that. So that's one kind of privacy that you have, and it's a privacy that's spelled out in the Constitution. The other kind of privacy, um, I would say, is um, things that you want to keep to yourself, things about you that you want to keep um, to yourself and you want to reveal selectively to different people. And so that could be, um, you know, uh, clearly if you're going to open up a bank account, you're going to have to tell your bank certain facts about yourself. If you want to engage in a commercial contract with somebody, you're going to have to reveal certain things about yourself. But my neighbor doesn't need to know any of those things. And so my ability to keep certain things to myself and to reveal selectively those things to who I want to, that's sort of financial privacy as well. So to me, it's sort of those two things. It's one is an ability to maintain certain things to myself or reveal them. The other is my right uh, to uh, have um, sort of security without uh, uh, you know, lacking a warrant from the state. You sort of have these, you know, the, the distinct boundaries, right? There's the boundary of my, my own, you know, 
as you said, personal artifacts, records, uh, and, and sort of a sanctity around that. But, but we understand uh, if, if, we're, if we want to interact with the broader financial system, we, we do give up some privacy, right? Certainly our identity uh, and, you know, certainly within the broader uh, global landscape, uh, the records of our transactions, uh, we know that those are all, you know, uh, reportable to government, subpoenable by government without our knowledge and without yeah. our consent. And so uh, that, that's where I think it gets a little tricky because when you've voluntarily disclosed something to some counterparty, does that mean you've waived your Fourth Amendment rights? Maybe we don't have to go right to that, but that's actually something that um, Act. <laughs> I don't think is, is as clear cut, right? Um, and with crypto, crypt, with cryptocurrency, I think it's interesting because the, 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 the basically government's authority to require, as you said, without even your knowledge, that third parties like banks report information about you, turnover information is predicated on the fact that you disclose it voluntarily to that bank. So there's a third party exemption to the Fourth Amendment uh, requirement for a search warrant. Well, with cryptocurrency, if you're holding your own cryptocurrency in your own wallet, there is no third party. Yeah. Yeah. So there's the, the, I want to come to the to the the profound issues that exist with with digital currency, uh, in, in particular, you know, digital assets that are on public blockchains in, in a moment. But, uh, you know, just tying back to this this uh, this concept, I mean, the way I've articulated it is that um, you know, basically, uh, because of the way that the infrastructure of money works in the world today, uh, th those businesses that are licensed to interact with what are called, you know, money records, like database records called money, are, are required by law, depending on where you are in the world, but let's just say it's the United States, are really required by law to be agents of law enforcement. Mm -hmm. to actually act as the front line of policing transactions. And in fact, if you don't, as a financial intermediary, proactively police transactions and report them to the government, you are in violation of your licenses and you can get fined, you can go to jail. And so I, I don't actually think mo most individuals don't realize the fact that the financial intermediaries that they interact with are in fact agents of law enforcement and are required to be so. And that is the structure that we have today um, you can obviously take it to the next level, which is, you know, take a, uh, a country like China, where, you, you know, uh, the, the electronic money systems, right, the government can dive right into the records straight away. They, they can get, they can access them. They don't need to ask, they don't need a subpoena. They can just dive right in and, and take a look at whatever they want. Um, so it's, it's even less <laughs> uh, uh, privacy there. But that is sort of the status quo in the financial system today, which leads us to, um, I think, you know, th this world of cryptocurrency. And I want to focus, you know, most of our discussion today, not on the Bitcoins and Moneros and privacy focused, uh, you know, uh, non-sovereign uh, cryptocurrencies. Th those have, uh, those are very one far end of the spectrum, but really zoning in on, you know, this, uh, this world of stable coins, theoretical central bank digital currency, but just for today, maybe we focus on stable coins where, you know, we're finally at a place where we have uh, digital currencies that people want to transact for day-to-day -day things. They want to use, increasingly want to use those in commerce um, and in and in financial uh, activities. And um, you know, they, they do behave like, as you said, digital cash. Uh, and they are they they act as kind of bearer instruments on the public internet. 
and uh, and it's possible for a person to uh, kind of self custody these things, and that raises a, a lot of issues. And so I'd I'd love to hear you both talk a little bit about you know from a you know from a a policy maker perspective or 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 from a you know kind of a corporate accountability perspective maybe both of those you know what issues come to the fore when you have a, a, a like a digital dollar uh, stablecoin that's used on the public internet so from my point of view right the digital dollar on, a digital dollar on a public blockchain is essential for public blockchains to become enterprise usable uh, and that's not because you know cryptocurrencies are, aren't particularly useful, but because enterprises are inherently risk averse, right? If you know the model of how companies interact is basically, I have money, you have stuff, and we're going to exchange those things set to some terms and conditions, right? Um, and as an enterprise, I want a couple of things. Number one, I want to minimize my risk. That means I don't want to convert my dollars, which I get from my customers and perhaps in retail stores and to which I have to pay taxes on the other end of my earnings. I don't want to convert them to a different currency and then convert it back. That it causes risk. That's foreign exchange risk. Companies hate risk, unnecessary risk. So uh, enterprises want to have, they want to stay in the same currency from end to end. So by enabling stable coins on public blockchains, you're making public blockchains usable for enterprises provided you can offer them privacy. What is exciting to me about uh, the privacy approaches that are developing on public blockchains, especially the work we've been doing around zero knowledge proofs is they have a potential to do two things. Number one, they make privacy practical, right? We just didn't have a practical scalable mechanism for privacy on public blockchains previously that could handle not just a cryptocurrency, but pretty much any type of asset and even business logic. So that's, that's making it useful because if I have an exchange, not only do I want privacy about with whom I'm transacting and how much I'm paying, but also I, the terms and conditions of my deal also need to remain private. The second thing that's exciting to me is that the potential to change the way we interact with regulatory compliance in a way that's both consistent with the rules and potentially better. For the first time with zero knowledge proofs, we have this ability to prove something is true without disclosing the underlying data. Historically, all regulatory compliance has been based on to prove something being true, you have to disclose the data. And once you've disclosed the data, it's now flowing freely across right. a bunch of different uh, jurisdictions and, and rules. And so what I like about uh, the potential for zero knowledge proofs is I can prove to you something is true, right? I can give you certain types of proofs that you need them or third parties can provide proof, but the data is not out there. Right, my data is not flowing freely. And when a regulator comes to me and says, I need you to show me that you did something, I can prove, thanks to blockchain records and mathematical proofs, that I did comply with the rules. And that has a, there, to me, there seems like there's great potential for uh, positive proof of regulatory compliance and regulatory compliance without the disclosure of all of your personal right. information or business information. Right, and this is, uh, I, I think when, when a lot of people who operate in the existing, say, financial system or in other record-keeping situations or, or, or situations where you're having to certify yourself in some way, right, um, we've just all become so accustomed to the idea that, like, no, you have to give your records, you know, and, and all this information, all this personally identifiable information, and it's like we're spraying it all over the internet. It's creating a lot of issues, um, and I think when people hear crypto, 
they're generally like, ooh, crypto bad. Like, uh, you, you know, there's there's kind of like this, unfortunately, this 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 reaction that somehow if you're doing something with crypto or encryption, you're hiding something, uh, which is really, really unfortunate because, you know, you know, cl clearly what you're articulating is, hey, we're in this digital age. Uh, there's this massive proliferation of interactions that we have as individuals and as businesses. And we want to, we want to speed that up, make that better. But like, we want to do that w without having all these risks of data breaches or intrusions and, and zero knowledge proofs, which for, for the audience that isn't familiar, as you said, is just using mathematical proofs to, to demonstrate that something is true without sharing the underlying data. And that is, it's like a, it's a major, major breakthrough. And uh, this is the crypto is, is not just good, it's great. It actually is like critical to moving forward in the world, in, in the digital economy uh, and the like. Um, and I, I, I believe that zero knowledge proofs, you know, crypto made them necessary for privacy, but I believe they will have a transformational effect on data and analytics over time for exactly this reason, why do we, we store too much data? And we're, we have gotten in this mentality of thinking more data, better. It's not. More data is more liability, more risk, more, more privacy breaches. It is not. More data isn't always better. And we, uh, if we want to, to steward our client's data responsibly, we have to start thinking about less data. Yeah, so, so, uh, totally. Um, Jerry, just, you know, I know you talk to policymakers in D.C. a lot. You talk to you know, agencies and staffers and, you know, you, you have a, a lot of awareness on, on these issues. Um, when you, when you, you know, there's these hearings, I know you, you participate in, in, a, in a, quite a few hearings as well. There's always this question of, you know, these public blockchain digital currencies, you know, even the stable coins that are out today, like USDC and others, um, you know, there's still this sort of question of like, you know, it, you know, from a policy perspective, does this escape the anti-money laundering rules? Does this escape the requirements that the government has around the ability for law enforcement and the national security apparatus to do what it needs to do? What are you hearing on that? What do you, what do you and, and what do you think the, the, the current thinking is on that? So I think that there is there's a spectrum of thinking on this, right? And it sort of changes from the more direct connection you have with the technology and government where you're actually prosecuting cases or um, uh, you're working on intelligence, you have a certain view, whereas folks of higher you go up on the chain all the way up to cabinet, president, Congress, um, you have a different view. And I would say that at a very high level, um, there is um, misunderstanding oftentimes, um, there is skepticism, um, but it's, it's just a matter of education. At a lower level, at a more direct contact um, with the technology level, there's a great deal of understanding. Um, and um, there's also an understanding of what's possible and what's not possible. Um, and that I think leads to a good policy, right? Once you understand the parameters within you, what you have to work with, um, what you can expect to be revealed to you, what you can't, I think that leads to uh, to good policy. So right now, um, I would say that we're at a good spot when it comes to say stable coins um, because the law is pretty clear, right? So FinCEN issued guidance in May of last year and that guidance was very clear. Um, and so if you're a stable coin issuer, then you know 
you're a financial institution that needs to be registered with FinCEN and you have to know your customers and you have to file suspicious activity reports and, uh, and, and have an anti-money laundering program, et cetera. I think where there may be sort of um, questions that come up is, well, you have to know your customer and clearly your customer is anybody who comes to you to um, exchange a dollar for a stable coin or who comes to you with a stable coin to exchange it for a dollar, clearly your customer. But in between, you've got lots of different people who might come to possess that stable coin, the same way that a dollar bill, sure. you know, the bank, bank knows who you are um, and the bank knows who comes to it with a dollar, right? Um, but in between that dollar could pass lots of hands. Dollar bills, we really can't, there's nothing we can do. We can't really track those. Um, but on a public blockchain, you can't. So the question is, um, would at some point regulators come to the conclusion that a stablecoin issuer's customers are everybody who ever possesses that coin? I think that's problematic for a whole host of reasons. Yeah. So I think that's, that's one thing. And the other thing I would say, I totally agree with Paul, that we, if we want to protect consumers and protect our own privacy, we um, want to limit um, uh, uh, where this information goes and where this information is reported. And so things like zero knowledge proofs uh, are great because you can prove that you're compliant without showing, sharing the info. But I see financial intelligence units like FinCEN increasingly think of themselves as big data operations. Yeah. Right. They see themselves as um, the people in government who are able to spot trends and spot um, things that need to be further investigated. And they can't do that unless they have a big data set. And so when you go to them, hey guys, great news. We can prove to you we're compliant without sharing the data. Um, I wonder how, how they'll react to that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, there's, um, we, we have uh, the Financial Action Task Force, you know, guidelines on the record keeping obligations of virtual asset service providers, whether, whether you're a cryptocurrency exchange or a stablecoin issuer, any, any of the above. And, and it's sort of taking the uh, the rules that FinCEN had prior established around you know uh, you know know your customer's customer uh, and and follow that that money as it moves around the financial system and sort of superimposing that on top of digital currency and you know the industry is obviously um, doing a lot to to ultimately be compliant with that but what's interesting to me is that there's this huge opportunity right now to simultaneously meet that record keeping obligation while enhancing the privacy preserving characteristics mm -hmm. through the use of things like zero knowledge proofs or multiple signature escrowed access to data and other things that can be done with crypto. But the, you know, regulators are not hearing anything on that. They're basically saying, nope, this is the way it's been done. This is the way it works. You got to do that. Right. And it, it, you know, from my perspective, this could lead to actually a mass of a mass proliferation of our PII into more places on the internet that create more honeypots for hackers. Um, and so, you know, the digitalization of PII and it's, and it's a uh, transmission. Uh, this is one of the things we got to be able to fix and, and things like zero knowledge proofs can do that, but we, we need, we, we probably need amendments to rules or adjustments to, to be able to, to be able to get there. Um, but uh, uh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, what, what are, you know, from your perspective, uh, again, from both of you, um, you know, 
what are the risks of overreach? I and mean, we don't need to go Orwellian here. I mean, uh, we, we, we live in a, obviously a very complex world right now that is fast moving uh, on a lot of different vectors right now and, and challenging in many ways. And so it's, it's not hard to imagine government overreach, um, not just uh, in China, but in the United States or, or in other jurisdictions around the world that are in crisis right now. Um, lots of things can happen, incentives can change what are the real risks that happen here? What, what could go really badly uh, for individuals and businesses? From a, a business perspective, right, the biggest risk of regulatory overreach, uh, set aside you know, particular US law issues or other country law issues, the risk that exists overall is that historically, whether it's regulators or large enterprises, uh, everybody wants control. And the problem with kind of having control, and this is what made people initially so uncomfortable about the internet, and what makes them uncomfortable about public blockchains is the lack of control. But what we found last year, what we find over and over again is if one party controls a network, the other parties don't want to join. So the biggest risk of kind of overreach is that people decide that they don't want to adopt new technology because it presents too much of a substantial risk. And I'll give you a very good example. Um, one of the main ways that manufacturing companies connect to each other is through a system called EDI, Electronic Data Interchange. Um, it's literally as old as I am, which is obviously in my early 20s, um, but uh, uh, it, it actually dates from the 1970s. And it's a point-to-point -point messaging system. And it does work really well if you think about the fact that large supply chains or business operations are actually involved dozens or hundreds of companies across many different countries. Right. This is basically saying, I'll only allow you to send a message from one person to another. You're playing a game of telephone and inevitably the message gets delayed and it gets garbled and causes supply chain foul-ups. Right. That technology is still the primary technology in use because companies are reluctant to put their data into somebody else's centrally operated system. Blockchains could have a huge impact on freeing up supply chains, improving the flow of data, reducing inventory, improving working capital, speeding up payments. But they won't happen if every company or country thinks, I don't want to sign up for a system that's controlled by a rival government, by a potential competitor. So the bottom line is if, if overreach exists, people will not, companies especially will not adopt a new technology if they believe their business security, their business privacy, their strategic value is at risk. And that's sort of a good argument for an enterprise. For for public chains as the right infrastructure because it's non-aligned, right? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, right. A it's not aligned, it's not controlled. You know, we see very forced, governments with a lot of farsight, like the, the government of Singapore, they've been very explicit. When they've asked us to work on stuff for them, they've said, it's gotta be open source, it's gotta be public domain, right? It's gotta be built on open standards. Right. That's the kind of stuff that, that, that will get adopted. And uh, I think that, um, you know, that's the big downside. We're going we're gonna to say no thanks to a lot of productivity gains if somebody decides that they must have control or they must have the data over others. Yeah. So what I worry about with government overreach is um, politicization of financial intermediaries, right? And what I mean by that is this. Um, in an increasingly cashless world, right, where almost all transactions are meaningful transactions are gonna be digital, um, you're gonna to have to employ an intermediary. And that intermediary is uh, uh, sort of beholden to their regulator or their supervisor. And that ultimately is a political actor. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, right now to date, you know, we haven't seen too many abuses, but you can imagine that political uh, uh, person saying, um, don't process, you know, transactions for my political enemies. And we've seen this, right? So an example that I like to point out that some folks aren't aware of is, I think it's um, almost two years ago, um, uh, this started happening where Governor Cuomo in New York, um, after a uh, terrible, one of these terrible school shootings, basically said, um, he directed the New York Department of Financial Services um, to basically tell its regulated uh, banks and insurance companies to stop doing business with the NRA. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't do stop doing business with the NRA, um, they would be uh, uh, investigated, maybe their licenses would be uh, in question. Now, you know, whatever you may think about the NRA, the NRA is a nonprofit that does what? It induces its First Amendment rights to speech and association in order to defend another yeah. <laughs> constitutional right, a Second Amendment. And um, look, Governor Cuomo is basically saying, um, I'm going to put it out of business because they disagree with me on policy. Yeah. And I'm going to do that by um, saying you cannot transact in this country because of intermediaries. Right. We're obviously seeing enormous politicization of all kinds of uh, yeah. things <laughs> these days uh, and, and, and a disregard for constitutional mandates and other things. So it's, uh, yeah, the risks are real and they're, and they're not theoretical. Um, and we're not just talking about China, uh, you know, because everyone likes to point to China as, you know, or, or, or an authoritarian government. Um, <clears throat> those, those risks certainly are, are real, which actually maybe it's a, 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 a segue a little bit into, we have this private sector universe. Uh, we've got the you know de- decentralized, non-sovereign digital currencies. We've got you know uh, private private sector issued stable coins. Uh, we get, we're going to you know big arrangements that kind of make those work and scale. But we also have you know proactive discussion on the government issuing its own digital currency, uh, a la what China is doing. Um, and, and this is something, you know, lots of governments are contemplating and, you know, p- potentially, you know, f- theoretically uh, inserting themselves into the uh, identity and transaction history relationship at the, at the you know, token holder level. Uh, and, you know, it is in the, in the dialogues around this, it's certainly, um, you know, these privacy questions are really coming into play and, uh, on the one hand, people are saying this this could get very dystopian, and we we, we need to maintain some of the boundaries that we have. Um, but uh, I, I know that's something that that uh, you guys at Coin Center have have been plugged into and, and thinking about a bit. Yeah, so um, it's funny because something like a central bank digital currency is kind of outside of our remit. Um, but obviously, being digital currency experts, we. Um, we have ideas about it. So I'll just tell you what my personal uh, ideas about it are. And it's this, is that um, there's basically been discussion about two possibilities for a digital dollar or or central bank digital currency. One would be account-based, where basically the Fed opens up accounts for individuals. The other is token-based, right? In my mind, um, there is all the value that you would want is in a token-based system. An account-based digital dollar system is basically a public option for banking, which maybe that's great if if you're looking to expand um, uh, uh, access. 
Um, but the real uh, opportunity in creating a digital currency for the dollar is making it um, uh, bearer, making it programmable, right? Making, making it universal. And so if I'm in Rwanda and I want to engage on a regular contract and payments with somebody in Pakistan, right? And I want to use the dollar because the dollar is the best money there is. Um, I really can't open a Fed account. Right. So that excludes me. So yep. it's got to be um, token-based. And if it's token-based, um, to really, again, meet its potential, it's got to be private. Mm-hmm. Right? If it's not private, again, it, it, uh, it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- this is you know, something that I'm sure you both have, have reflections on, but you know, the, the internet has given us you know, peer-to-peer communications. It's given us uh, you know, peer-to-peer data exchange. It's given us permissionless decentralized infrastructure for all of these things. And, you know, if you would have gone back 30 years ago and said, you know, uh, anyone in the world can kind of, you know, broadcast uh, privately, securely uh, to anyone else, you know, for free without any eavesdropping or whatever, you know, it'd be like, what are you out of your mind? You know, um, there's so many things that the open internet has allowed for, which, you know, fundamentally just kind of mowed over existing institutional understandings, even policy and regulatory frameworks that existed. One could argue about some of those maybe have gone too far, Uh, but nonetheless, you know, the internet has allowed this and, you know, token-based, you know, stable coins or or, or whether they're they're, uh, somehow there's a, you know, a, a, a backing that is official, i.e. it's, it's, you know, the, the reserves are in a central bank or whatever that model is. Um, you know, the internet gives us this ability to transact with anyone anywhere directly over a public network in this bare instrument way. And that's, and, and programmable and all these things that you talked about, that's like a really big breakthrough for the world. And, um, you know, it strikes me that, uh, you know, we really ought to defend that and and defend the possibilities that come from that um, and what that means for people and what that means for, for businesses. And I, I certainly, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Paul. I was gonna say, I certainly think from a, a public policy perspective, we need to find a way to balance the regulatory compliance with the privacy component because the dollar is the world's de facto currency, but it will not stay that way if there's no way easily for people outside the United States to make use of that, right? And it has become, we have been raising the barriers to entry. Uh, I, one of my early jobs, I, I worked in West Africa, right? The dollar was a de facto currency. People paid their bills in dollars, business to business transactions were done in dollars, but they were done in cash, right? And I can actually remember, you know, holding a, ter- what to me it seemed like terrifying amounts of cash, but it, it was really useful because the dollar was such a reliable and stable currency. Um, I think, uh, you know, a completely private token-based dollar uh, would be a boon to money, lend- money launderers and drug dealers and, and, and terrorists. And, and that's not something I want to see. But I also don't want to see it become impossible for individual users to have some personal privacy and for there to be relatively low barriers to entry. One of the things that is being uh, looked at in China and people have talked about is a kind of a blended model where up to a certain amount of of digital currency, 
you are you can have it and it operates like caps it is effectively yeah. anonymous uh, there's no kind of barriers to entry uh and things like that i think we have to think about something like that i, I think you know when i back in the good old days when we traveled internationally you remember those just a few months ago <laughs> um right i think if you, you left the country you moved around with more than a certain amount of money you had to declare it but you know nobody bothered you if you had a bit of cash in your wallet right and i think um we need to figure out how, how to do that but if we don't to me there's big economic policy implications for the loss of the dollar as the global global reserve currency and then secondly uh i think that the question that we often turn over in our minds is you know central bank digital currencies they sound nice but we keep what's obscured from this conversation all the time is the fact that almost all central bank transactions are already digital and i have not heard in many cases a really compelling explanation for why central banks want to build a private blockchain that's not customer accessible that doesn't support public blockchain transactions that sounds to me like just another digital interbank payment systems and uh, and i'm not clear always on the value proposition of why it should be a blockchain a dlt or some kind of other token based system and that's not been clearly articulated uh yet and and i think that's one of the reasons why you have seen a fair amount of experimentation but not a specific push in in a particular country outside of china yeah you know um digital currency enthusiasts and bitcoiners for a long time have pointed out um HTTP error 402, I think, which is the no payment, um, and saying, look, you know, we 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 were ready for, you know, web native digital payments, but they never happened in Bitcoin or something like it was going to be it, and that hasn't happened, in large part because of you know Bitcoin's volatility. So stable coins now have the promise of being that, being you know, say a dollar stable coin, being that programmable money that can be the native. Um, money of the web. Um, but the problem there is you've got lots of different standards, lots of different kinds. That's what I think, you know, if, if I was um, making policy for the US and central bank digital currency, yeah. well, could you imagine what a what a official dollar uh, uh, coin would be? Now, I think if you game it all out, um, and I've done a lot of thinking about this, if you game it all out, I think Paul is right that the, that the, the settlement that makes the most sense at the end of the day is going to be having cash-like properties up to a certain amount, but above that, um, have it be um, traced in some way. The problem is, I don't see how that's technically possible with a token-based model. So I, so I do. We, we, we think about this all the time, obviously, uh, uh, at, at Circle with, with USDC. And I, I think, um, you know, in fact, the, the, the work that, the, that FATF has put forward and this work around travel, it basically defines a way to do this. I mean, it basically says, look, these are token-based. They're bearer instruments. They can exist on a public blockchain. Um, but if, if, if you're a VASP or you're an intermediary that's dealing in these, which is, you know, now pretty, becoming pretty uniform around the world, that if you're dealing in these things as, as a business, you have to do this with these rules, you just you need to keep records for things above a thousand dollars, and uh, and that's that's sort of the that's sort of the compromise position. They're all the same underlying digital cash instruments. They're all still the same. It's just if it's above a thousand dollars, you're going to have to exchange a little bit more data, etc. And they ultimately still allow for individuals to self custody as well. But it's the same kind of thing. Like I I could self custody 
you know, a, a million dollars in, in hundred dollar bills. Like I have the ability to do that. Uh, but if I show up at a bank with that, they're going to want a lot of information from me uh, in, in order to convert that into uh, something that they're, they're holding or investing uh, on my behalf. And so, you know, these sort of cash like rules and these record keeping rules, I think they can work um, and they can apply um, and, and, and still give uh, that access in West Africa or that programmability or that, uh, you know, base layer of, of privacy that, that people are interested in. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I just, uh, I totally agree with you that it, you, it's, it, it's doable today, but when a CBDC is being designed from scratch, and so what are its abil you know, what abilities will it, will it provide for, for individuals are being designed from scratch? Um, will a designer, will a state designer make it such so that it mimics cash completely? And yeah. I, I, you know, I fear not. They're going to listen to the Ken Rogoffs of the world, and say, no, there's no real legitimate reason why anybody has to have a million dollars. Yeah, this is a bigger question. So, but I, I think this is this is where the power of public blockchains comes in. And I, uh, a lot, this this gets debated over and over again. And I, I really encourage people. There, there was an article, I want to say, 15 years ago in Wired magazine. It was called "The Netheads versus the Bellheads," um, and it was about the early origins of the internet and the transition to IP. And I'll tell you, all the really smart people said that, you know, there was no scope for this, this chaotic, uh, unstructured internet protocol. It's never going to scale. People aren't going to use it. It doesn't have quality of service, right? Um, I, I think uh, the market tends to speak very effectively in that respect. I think uh, if you design a system that doesn't provide for a lot of flexibility, that doesn't support open access, that isn't built on a, a genuinely open source model, you won't get a lot of adoption. You know, certainly you'll you'll find some people who will adopt it. Um, and and I could have a we could have a whole separate episode on what I think is actually some very far-sighted and thoughtful regulation thoughts that are coming out of mainland China with regard to their market. But uh, I think you know, particularly in the U.S. and Europe, if it's not open source, if it's not public domain, if it doesn't run on public blockchains, you know, people can design whatever they want. I'm not sure it's going to get adopted. Right. There's hundreds and hundreds of private blockchains right. uh, and, and they have like zero traction. They're that, just like they're empty shopping malls. I'm totally with you on that. And I think, uh, you know, kind of private sector is racing ahead. The open standards, open source world is racing ahead. And um, and, and ultimately, um, I think that's what that that's what's going to get the adoption and traction. And, and central banks will have supervisory standards. Right. They'll uh, versus like we're going to go clean room, build this. Well, there's a, a lot we could uh, continue to talk about here. Um, this has been an excellent conversation uh, today and, and uh, would love to have you guys back on other topics as well. But you know, thank you so much uh, for joining uh, today. Thank Thanks, you Jeremy. Absolutely. So, you know, very interesting juxtaposition of issues here. And we're, we're really right now, right in the thick of it as stablecoins take off, as policymakers respond and, and, and set standards, as the entire industry, both the digital currency industry and traditional financial institutions are figuring out, okay, now how do we do this at scale uh, with mainstream adoption? So these, these financial privacy issues are, are, are at the forefront and we'll come back to that topic again. So next week, um, we're going to be having uh, some guests for what I think is going to be a very timely episode uh, of the Money Movement, where we're going to be talking about banking meets stablecoins. And obviously, big news was this week where the Treasury Department 
uh, issued guidelines for federally chartered banks that said that they are uh, permitted to and, uh, and, and in some ways were encouraged that they could uh, uh, custody uh, cryptocurrency uh, and, and, and crypto assets. Uh, that's a very significant uh, impact in, I think, the banking sector. Uh, it opens up a tremendous uh, opportunity for the banking sector to get more involved with cryptocurrency and with stablecoins in particular. So, uh, you know, at Circle, we're seeing accelerated interest from neobanks, from fintechs, from global banks on adopting digital currency and stablecoins as a payment and settlement medium. And we expect this to be a major theme in the coming year. So joining us next uh, Thursday are three guests, uh, including Oliver uh, von Landsberg Saadi, the founder and CEO of BCB Group, a European neobank, uh, embracing stablecoins as a core payment medium. Uh, Julian Howell, who's the head of blockchain lab at Bank Frick and Company AG. Similarly, a fast-growing European neobank that has adopted USDC as an alternative to SWIFT for international dollar settlements. And Michael Morrow, the chief executive officer of Genesis, uh, who is perhaps the largest institutional lending facility in crypto and whose firm is driving and building significant stablecoin-based credit markets. Uh, so some very interesting kind of convergence of what we think of as banking uh, with stablecoins. So looking forward to next week. Uh, and until next time, stay well, stay safe and stay informed. Thank you. <laughs>